Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and I want to talk about the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. By now, I am sure that most of you, if not all of you, have seen the terrifying, horrifying, the heartbreaking video of Minneapolis police restraining a man named George Floyd on a street in Minneapolis, an incident that resulted in Mr. Floyd's death. And you can recall, I am sure, as I can, Mr. Floyd's pleas as the officer held him down. Yes, I can't breathe. So reminiscent of another video that we saw. It was not that long ago. It was 2014, the death of Eric Garner, again caught on a bystander cell phone video in which that man in Staten Island, New York, uh, under arrest for selling loose cigarettes, is restrained by a chokehold applied by a New York Police Department officer saying, I can't breathe. This is such a horror. It is so excruciating to see and to hear and to watch as the man, Mr. Floyd, pleads for breath as he lies on his belly on the street with a police officer kneeling on the side of his neck. The police officer seems calm, hands in pockets, other police officers visible, not really agitated, don't look threatened, and Mr. Floyd, as I said, handcuffed and in no position to threaten them. Um, He stays there, the officer does, uh, while Mr. Floyd pleads with him uh, to allow him to breathe until Mr. Floyd eventually stops pleading, stops speaking, stops moving. An ambulance arrives four minutes at least after Mr. Floyd's last word. He is lifted limp onto a stretcher and taken away. Now, what can we make of this? What can we do with it? Where can we go with it? It's very hard to answer these questions in any way that's even remotely satisfactory. But let's start here. We know that the first report out of the Minneapolis Police Department was pretty sanitized. It simply indicated that police had responded to a a report of a forgery. They found Mr. Floyd there either in or sitting on a car. Uh, The police had attempted to arrest him, and he had, quote, resisted. And at some point, Mr. Floyd uh, uh, seemed to be, quote, suffering medical distress, and an ambulance was called. He died later in a hospital. That was kind of it. Then the video came hours later, a video taken by the cell phone camera of a bystander, and we saw just how much more to it there was. There is Mr. Floyd, restrained in handcuffs, lying belly down on the ground, pleading for breath with that police officer's knee across his neck. The police officer's hands in his pockets. Another police officer kind of making sure nobody gets too close to the action. 
uh, putting himself between the bystanders who are calling out for relief for Mr. Floyd and the other police officers. Um, so we know that the video is what unlocks this. And of course, after the video comes out, there are calls and condemnations by everybody from the mayor to the chief of police. The chief of police fires all four officers, not just the officer with his knee on Floyd's neck, but the other three who were there doing nothing about it. Um, what can we draw from this? Well, we know that video is powerful. It is really powerful. You can see what a difference it makes. I'm going to come back and talk about that in just a minute one more time. What else can we draw here? Well, as I've said before in other contexts here on criminal injustice, there is the right and sometimes the obligation of police officers to use force in the execution of their legal duties and obligations. They have that privilege in a way that the rest of us civilians simply don't have. They have the right under the law and the Constitution of the United States, the Fourth Amendment, to use a reasonable amount of force enough to overcome any resistance that they are facing in effectuating their legal and proper tasks enough force to overcome any resistance, not more. So if a person uh, who is supposed to be arrested is hanging on to, let's say, a telephone pole, that's resistance to arrest, but the officer would not have a right to use deadly force in a situation like that. A man being arrested might strike out uh, with a punch. That is not enough to justify deadly force in a situation like that. So the amount of force must be reasonable and calibrated. Only what is, quote, objectively reasonable. More about that in a minute. And what you see here in this terrible, terrible video is, without a doubt in my mind, this is just my opinion, too much force, too much excessive force for sure. How can it not be excessive force to keep the knee of the officer and the officer's weight on a man's neck who is pleading for breath for not one, two, three, at least four minutes after the man ceases to make any noise or even move. When the man has clearly passed out, how is that even remotely reasonable? So I would fully expect the issue of excessive force to come into this, and indeed I'm sure that's part of the reason that these officers were fired. Uh, second thing I think we could discuss here uh, in the early going, a number of people have asked me, members of the press have asked me, hey, we hear that the Minneapolis police force policy uh, says that the use of a knee on the neck is non-lethal force. How can that be? Uh, we see it's lethal in this video. Well, here are a couple of things to take in. Number one, uh, police uses of force are regularly categorized this way along what's called the continuum of force in some police departments. It has other names elsewhere. The idea is that you grade the use of force in levels in order, like I said before, to come along and use only the amount that is reasonably necessary. Okay, so you don't use deadly force if somebody uh, is just saying, no, I won't get in the police car. 
It's not appropriate. Uh, you have to use the right amount of force. This type of force is categorized as non-lethal, but I think you'd also be surprised perhaps to learn that there are many other kinds of injurious force that are also characterized as non-lethal, such as the use of pepper spray, the use of tasers, the use of collapsible batons. All of these things can hurt and injure, and in some circumstances, they can kill. All right. When they say non-lethal, they don't mean that the force can't kill. They mean that in the usual course of things, if used properly, if used according to training and policy, these methods of force should not kill. Not that they never will. And what we see here is a non-lethal use of force, according to the Minneapolis Police Department, used in a way that does kill. And what I've heard some police people say in the aftermath is that this is clearly something where the officer was not obeying his training or the training and policy were defective. One of the two, because there's just no way that it could be proper to keep a knee and all the body weight on a person's neck at this point. Point number three, it's worth remembering there's a history to the use of these tactics, and it's a terrible history, a terrible history. We can all remember, as I said, Eric Garner in Staten Island dying in a police chokehold as he chokes out the words, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. But it goes back farther than that. Here in Pittsburgh, where I live and where I'm recording this, back in the middle 90s, a terrible, tragic police incident involving police officers from municipalities just outside our city involving a black man named Johnny Gamage. Johnny Gamage was the cousin of a player for the Steelers, Ray Seals, and he was out driving Ray's Jaguar in a very nice car driven by one black man. He was stopped by police, and moments later, he ended up with a number of these officers on top of him, and he died of asphyxiation from chest compression. That was more than 20 years ago. And we can go back farther. You go back to 1983, a case reaches the Supreme Court of the United States. It's the city of Los Angeles versus Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, and in this case, the Supreme Court is litigating a chokehold case. A man who was stopped for traffic uh, gets put into a chokehold when he is not threatening the police at all by LAPD officers, and he turns around and sues. And this case ends up all the way in the U.S. Supreme Court. And our helpful Supreme Court says, not you can't sue for that because you can't prove that this is going to happen to you again. Uh, it's, it's one of those uh, signal events for those interested in civil rights and police conduct. It cut off a lot of the avenues for perhaps taming this kind of terrible conduct. No longer could there be a federal lawsuit for conduct like that uh, if you couldn't prove that this was going to happen to you again. So it goes back decades. And beyond that, of course, I just want everybody to know that this question 
of police tactics that cut off breathing is way overdue for re-examination. You can call them non-lethal all you want, but people die from this stuff. At the very least, the greatest caution should be used. There is no reason that this police officer who's bearing down with his weight on Mr. Floyd's neck should not have adjusted Mr. Floyd's position or changed the way that he was holding him or done something other than what he was doing. And instead, he maintains this crushing weight on Mr. Floyd's neck for minutes after he passes out. That just isn't right. That just isn't right. Now, next question. Do I think the police officers will be criminally charged? I think it's likely that at least some and maybe all four of the officers will be criminally charged. They will face criminal charges. I feel fairly certain that the officer with the knee on the neck will be charged with a crime. The other three officers, remember, are charged not because they, uh, they, they put their knees on his neck, but because they didn't do anything and they appeared to keep the action going. Um, and, and, and so their cases against them would be somewhat harder to bring. But let's be realistic here. I don't want people to jump the gun. Even if there are criminal charges, these are going to be hard cases. Hard cases, you say. I can hear you now. Hard, how can it be a hard case? We saw the video. It's horrible. Well, I just want to point out, folks, that we have had horrible videos before and we have not had charges sometimes. And even when we have had charges... There have been no convictions. This is a very bitter pill uh, to swallow when we can see how terribly wrong things went, resulting in the loss of life, and nothing happens with the criminal charges. Example, Michael Slager shoots Walter Scott in the back as the unarmed Mr. Scott is running away as fast as he can. The officer takes a stance and puts eight shots in Walter Scott's back, and Walter Scott is killed. Then for good measure, uh, the officer, Michael Slager, seems to plant his taser next to Mr. Scott as evidence. That case was charged. It went to a jury. No guilty verdict. The jury refused to convict him. Mr. Slager did go to prison. The officer did, but only when he got a sort of sweet deal from the feds to plead guilty. Item. In Chicago, you know about the killing of Laquan McDonald that was caught on video, right? That police officer, when he had to face that video, he was convicted and went to prison. But his fellow police officers who made up stories and tampered with evidence to protect him and to keep that story, quote, straight, those people were tried too. And they were all acquitted. I can give you many other examples. It's just really hard to understand, but video, as bad as it is, does not change the legal and social fundamentals. Those are the law, which the Supreme Court has laid out and given us the objectively reasonable police officer standard. You don't judge through civilian eyes. You don't judge in hindsight. You keep in mind at all times that officers have a very dangerous uh, hard job that uh, can change in a split second and they have to make split second judgments. This is the Supreme Court telling us how to tell juries 
that they should consider the evidence. So it's very favorable to police officers. Now, you may think that's the right thing. You may think that's the wrong thing, but it is the law, and the videos do not change the law. The other thing that is not changed by videos, the social world. It is beginning to change, perhaps, but much too slowly. And there are still lots and lots of people out in the world serving on juries who give police officers the benefit of the doubt every time, regardless of what the video shows, and who harbor their own, as most of us do, I want to say, our stereotypes and implicit biases deep in our minds, even when we're not aware of them, uh, uh, portray black men as criminal, as dangerous, and as violent. And you put those things together, and it's no wonder you don't get convictions. Then sometimes, as I said, charges aren't even brought. DAs work hand-in-glove all the time with their police departments. They're reluctant to bring charges against police officers. DAs also know that these are hard cases to win. We had a case here in Pittsburgh not long ago, caught on bystander cell phone video. A young man is running from a car straight away from the police officer. There's nothing in the young man's hands that is visible. Uh, He is posing no threat, and he gets three shots in the back and dies. The police officer testifies that in that moment he was, quote, in fear for his life. The jury acquits. So these are hard cases, and DAs don't want to bring them. So just a word of caution. Yes, I do believe there will be charges, but these will not be easy cases to win. And you have to factor in that often the investigation uh, is not done independently. I don't know what the procedures are up there in Minneapolis, whether the local DA does the investigation, the local police department, or whether there is some other arrangement. So... I've given you a lot to chew on. This is just the first cut at this that we'll take here on criminal injustice. We'll be watching this case very closely, as I know many of you have. And I'm left with, I imagine the same question that you are. Is there hope? You know, we launched criminal injustice in many ways as, as a reaction to the events in Ferguson and everything that followed and the many killings of black men unarmed by police and others killed by police too. A thousand a year, most found justified. But we ask every time, where's the change? Where's the hope? Right? I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is one of the most difficult problems we face as a society. And it is not just a police problem. Please, it just isn't. The police are drawn from us. Whatever attitudes we have as a society, we should expect to see them in police. And more than that, uh, these issues of race and criminal justice just aren't easy to tame. Uh, we, I'm not telling anybody to be patient. I am not saying this is how you should feel. We need to be angry and outraged at a moment like this. And we civilians are not the only ones, okay? So maybe that is where we can end this. Uh, I want to tell you what I'm hearing and observing that does give me a little bit of hope. The one thing I do observe uh, from 2014 to right now, including this case, is how much more quickly some of the criminal justice gears 
turn. Not in every case. Think about Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. Uh, more than two months between the filing of the police report on Ahmad's death and finally video and then charges. But for the most part, you just see these things going much faster, especially, though not only, when there is video. Uh, the police officers in Minneapolis were all fired the, almost the same day, I believe, that the video came out. Um, and that is a change. It's not enough, but it is a change. I would just ask those of you who can remember before Ferguson, what used to happen? You'd have one of these cases, a terrible shooting, and there'd be all kinds of hand-wringing. Oh, terrible but it's very local. It could be a bad apple. It could just wait for the investigation. The investigation would limp along and, you know, a month would be six months, would be 12 months, then 18 months. And pretty soon everybody's kind of forgotten it. And then some afternoon or evening, there's this announcement. We won't be bringing any charges. You know, they just slow walk until everybody stopped paying attention. And that really doesn't happen the same way it used to. So there's a sliver of hope. But maybe something more I have caught wind of is what I see people who have made their careers in law enforcement saying right now. And let's concede words are less expensive than deeds, but I think words are significant. This is not something you would hear from police officers or even former police officers in times past. So let me read you just a couple of quotes. The first one I want to read you comes from uh, Seth Stoughton. Uh, Seth is a former police officer, now a professor of law himself at the University of South Carolina. He's been a guest here on Criminal Injustice, I believe, episode 11. Boy, that's our second season. That's a long time ago. Uh, I think very highly of him. Here is his quote. I just cannot fathom an officer in 2020 honestly saying, yes, I thought it was okay to keep him in that position for almost four minutes after he passed out. That's just mind-boggling to me. Another quote. I was on a discussion group this morning, um, uh, people that I often uh, uh, listen to their thoughts and watch the things that they say. Uh, here are some words from a man who has been in law enforcement for 50 years. He served as chief of police in a number of different departments. Uh, here is his reaction. Um, he's talking first about the officers who failed to do anything as they saw this happening uh, these actions by the officer with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. Here we go. Quote, they certainly failed to take control of the situation. It was not a frenzied encounter where force is used to take control. This was a calm officer with his hands in his pockets as he put his knee on Floyd's neck and ignored his pleas that he couldn't breathe while the other officers just stood there. One seemed to be trying to block the camera view. I have been in this business for over 50 years and have never seen anything quite like this. It is a good thing the chief fired them, but that is not enough. The review needs to focus on helping us understand how we could get to a place where something like this could happen. That's a chief with 50 years in the business. 
Now, I want to read you one more, and this came from very near where Mr. Floyd died. You have probably heard Minneapolis referred to as one of the twin cities. Uh, If you've been up there, you know that uh, two cities are separated by the Mississippi River. It is Minneapolis and St. Paul. I've been up there. I've given some lectures and book talks, and I've testified in the legislature, which is located in St. Paul. And I came across this sent to me by a criminal injustice listener named Grace. She sent me a statement put out by the chief of police in St. Paul. His name is Todd Axtell, A-X-T-E-L-L. He put this statement on Facebook, and I'd like to read it to you. He titled it, A Time for Reflection. It has been a difficult few days for all of us. Like you, I've been shocked, disgusted, angry, and grieving. I've also taken some time to collect my thoughts and make sure I've addressed this issue with your police officers, he puts in parentheses the St. Paul Police Department, before talking about it publicly. Now I want you to know where I stand. The video of a man being arrested across the river is beyond disturbing. The situation can only be described as a tragedy in every sense of the word. I'm also using this as an opportunity to do some soul-searching, and I've asked our officers to join me in doing the same. I often say that being a police officer is a calling, and those who answer it do so because they want to help people. At the St. Paul Police Department, we look for people who, at a minimum, possess these qualities. Integrity, respect for all, compassion, and empathy. These are the building blocks on which trust, community safety, and professional fulfillment are built, and they are non-negotiable. They also need to be maintained. Today, I asked all St. Paul Police Department officers to check in on themselves. Something went horribly wrong at the intersection of 38th and Chicago, and everyone in law enforcement owes it to themselves, their coworkers, their city, and the people they serve to make sure it doesn't happen again. So today, I asked every St. Paul Police Department officer to watch the horrible video and do something different. I asked them to put themselves in George Floyd's shoes. I asked them to imagine they are on the ground and cannot breathe. Imagine that their only option is to turn to a police officer for help. Imagine the pain, fear, and desperation. Then think about how their families would feel later, watching such a video of them beneath the knee of an officer with no hope. Then I asked them to put themselves in the shoes of the officers, the bystanders, the community members we serve who are now forced to confront this tragedy. As painful as this is, it's something we as law enforcement professionals must do. Because when we lose our integrity, respect for all, compassion, and empathy, when we stop seeing people and only see problems, we lose everything that is good about our profession. Finally, I challenged our officers to ask themselves if they would have done anything differently from what the officers did in the video. If the answer is no, I told them to reconsider their career choice. Integrity, respect for all, compassion, empathy. These are qualities that are non-negotiable as law enforcement professionals and as human beings. 
I know that the job is difficult. I know the vast majority of the time officers do what is right. But I also know that if we don't check ourselves, we run the risk of losing touch with humanity. And then we have lost everything. I'm praying for Mr. Floyd, his family, our community, and our police officers. And I'm committed to doing everything possible to make sure we never again see another tragedy like this. Those are the words of Chief of Police Todd Axtell of St. Paul, Minnesota, across the river from Minneapolis. Now, if I could, if I could do it without imposing more hurt through your ears, I'd give you the words of Mr. Floyd's own family. I know you're hearing them and reading them everywhere. Let them ring in our ears. Let's work every day in ways big and small to not allow things like this to happen again. Remember, this is not just a police problem. It's a problem of our whole society. Everybody, everybody must regard Mr. Floyd, who has died, as their own brother, child, family member. He's not someone else. He's not another person. He is ours. And when we think of him like that, when we think of Tamir Rice like that, when we think of Antoine Rose like that, only when we think like that can we make real progress. That's it for Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris talking to you about the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. We'll be watching that story and we'll be back with more. Thanks for being with me. I'll be back with you next time.